turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, where Paul begins to share about the overwhelming grace of God, the way that the blood of Christ washed his own sins away. This is what Paul writes. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we do pray for the outpouring of your spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds and our souls to the truth of your word, to the wonder of your grace, that it might flow over us afresh this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Little Bilney. His original name was Thomas Bilney. He was one of the early martyrs in the Reformation. Thomas Bilney was called Little Bilney because of his diminutive stature. He was a man who was born in 1495 in England. He grew up, he was a scholarly individual, he studied law at Cambridge, became a fellow at Trinity Hall in 1520, and as his life progressed, neither his study nor his ordination to the ministry brought him peace, and he was reading the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament one day, and he came upon this verse in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, and this is little Bilney's account of coming upon that verse, he says this, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, a most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul in 1 Timothy 1. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence, Bilney writes, through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort from quietness and insomuch that my bruised bones began to leap for joy. And after this, the scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than the honey or the honeycomb. Bilney then went on to become one of the central figures and a group of theologians who met in the famous White Horse Inn adjacent to King's College in Cambridge. And there they planned for the Reformation in England. And for preaching the gospel, 
that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, Bilney was arrested in 1527, and he was given the option of recanting and renouncing his faith or being tortured and burned at the stake. And under pressure, Bilney recanted, and he renounced his faith. He began to write against uh, publishing his his, uh, his, um, withdrawal of his Christian faith. But then he was confronted again by the Word of God, and he began preaching this truth that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He began preaching it again in 1531, and shortly after, he was arrested again. And he was tried and found guilty. And given once again the option to recant or to be burned at the stake, he said that he would not recant, and he was burned at the stake. And there is a plaque that reads this, Thomas Bilney, fellow of Trinity Hall, Cambridge, burned to death close to the spot in Lollard's Pit, August 19, 1531, for spreading the gospel of free salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, blessed martyr of God. What happened? Is that the grace of God overwhelmed him. The grace of God overwhelmed him, and it was so profound and so transformative that he couldn't get away from this idea that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, including little Bilney. And the thought of abandoning the grace of God for the flames of the stake was nothing in his mind and compared to the thought of forsaking the grace of God himself, grace of God itself, for he was overwhelmed with the amazing grace of God. He was overwhelmed that God's grace would come to someone such as him, for God's grace is awful. That is, his grace inspires all. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is awful because it comes to awful, meaning horrific people. God's grace is awful and amazing because it comes to awful people. And that is Paul's testimony. It says in verse 13, Paul describes himself, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul was a religious predator. He was a blasphemer. He was a religious predator who hunted down, who sought out and hunted down Christians and sought to torture them, imprison them, and persecute them, and even kill them. He was a blasphemer. He spoke evil of Jesus Christ, and he forced others to do the same. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was one who intensely tried to destroy the church. Paul was the forerunner of what ISIS has been doing in the Middle East. I'm sure you're probably aware of in the noon what ISIS has been doing for the last many years is that on houses throughout the Middle East, if they identify someone as a Christian, they spray this symbol on their door or on their building, which is the Arabic letter Noon, which means a Nazarite, that this means that this person is a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Nazarite, Jesus of Nazareth. And this spray painting on the door is an indicator, is an, it indicates to the armies and to the 
ISIS soldiers that would come after him, that this is a house that may be destroyed. This is a house that should be destroyed. This is a house that needs to be completely and totally eradicated. And they're simply doing what Paul was doing centuries before. He was a persecutor. The text says in Luke's account of Paul that Paul, as at the time his name was Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. That's 135 miles away. That's a multi-day journey on horseback if he had a horse. He asked for letters to go to the synagogue so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was breathing in threats and murder, is what the text there says. That he was one still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, like a rabid and ravenous dog at the smell of blood, whose nostrils are flaring, whose nose is twitching, at the smell of blood, ready to devour is the Apostle Paul. He would settle for nothing less than the complete extermination of anyone who called themselves Christians. Paul's own account, Paul says before uh, the emperor, he describes himself this way. He says, after finding them, that is Christians, he says, I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blasphemy, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That he extended his political authority and went to foreign countries in order to persecute Christians. Brian Chappell summarizes beautifully the Apostle Saul at this time, the Apostle Paul at this point in his life. He was a callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on full-scale inquisition. A callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on full-scale inquisition. Paul describes himself further. He said he was an insolent opponent, one who was a brutal, bloody, and arrogant and violent man. He was evil in his words, evil in his deeds, evil in his entire being. Paul's horrific awfulness was not lost on him. In fact, he goes here in this verse, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We would expect this to say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I was the foremost. And we would say, yes, that is understandable. You, you were the foremost. You were a persecutor of Jesus Christ. You were the one who hunted them down to other cities. You were a bloodthirsty, arrogant, violent, and insolent man. You were the worst. But Paul says, no. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm like, really? I mean, come on. I mean, really, the foremost? I mean, there's a lot of really bad dudes out there, Paul. I mean... I, I am the foremost. You're at the end of your life right now. You've already been converted to Christianity. You've, you've had several missionary journeys. You've started multiple churches. You've written many books of the New Testament. You've been tortured for your faith, and you would not recant. You've been ab- abandoned by your friends, and you've held true. You're nearing the, towards the end of your life at this point. Are you really saying, I am the foremost? 
At this point in your life, I am the foremost sinner. But what Paul is stating here is not an objective statement of his sin tally versus another person's sin tally. Rather, what he is stating is what is the confession of a heart that has been brought to life by Jesus Christ. That has been brought to life by the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's just simply the confession of a spiritually healthy heart. Christians never say, Christians should never say, oh, I would never do that. Oh, I could never do what that person did. Because the grace of God never cultivates superiority. The grace of God never fosters a moral arrogance that deludes you into thinking that you're beyond some sort of sin or some sort of atrocity that someone else has committed. That in the life of a Christian, the Holy Spirit works in this life, there is this profound realization that no matter who they are sitting across from, no matter whose eyes they are looking to on the, into across the face of the earth, there is a profound realization that they can earnestly say to them, I am no better than you. No matter what crimes you have committed or what you have done, I am no better than you. And in fact, I'm, I'm probably worse. And the Apostle Paul knew his own heart. And in knowing his own heart, he, he didn't know someone else's heart. Indeed, he couldn't know someone else's heart. But in examining his own heart, he couldn't imagine that anyone would be a worse sinner than himself. Quite frankly, it's just the way that godly people think. Because when you become convicted of sin, you give up comparisons. When you begin to experience the grace of God, you give up comparing yourself to where other people stand in relation to you and in relationship to God. What you begin focusing on is the wonder of God's grace in your own life. And when that grace begins to transform you, no matter where you are or who you're talking to, you can look at them and earnestly say, I I am no better than you, in fact. If you knew the things that went on inside my own heart, I'm probably worse. And it was this confession of Paul that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That struck little Bilney. And it's this testimony of God's awful, amazing grace that it comes to awful, horrific people that changes evil and guilty and wicked and shameful hearts, for there is no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. There is no one who is too far gone, no one who has done too much, no one who has done something that God cannot forgive or can't, or can't reach. There is no one too obstinate, too removed. You know that family member of yours who shakes his fist at God? You know that coworker of yours that, 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 is, that spews out this anti-Christian intellectual nonsense? You know this, that, that professor of yours that delights in ridiculing Christians? You know that friend of yours who sold themselves out for the lust of the flesh and for the pride of life? There is no one, including them, who is beyond the reach and beyond the grace of God. Is there anyone who can be excluded from the awful and amazing grace of God? By no means. This is a conviction that should be deeply seated within every one of us who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ. A conviction 
that you can look at someone and say, and say, you know what? If God can save me, if God can transform the hardness of my own heart, then he can save anybody. That's a truth that I believe with every ounce and fiber of my being. That if God can save me, if he can change a heart that was as hard as mine, if God can do that in me, he can do that in anybody. I believe that with every ounce and fiber of my being, and I hope that you do too. God's awful, amazing grace comes to awful and horrific people. And when it comes, it doesn't come as a trickle. It comes overflowing, for his grace overflows. What happened to the Apostle Paul, his characterization of it is this way. I received mercy because I had acted in unbelief. When he says this, Paul is not saying that his ignorance earned him mercy. Rather, Paul is fully acknowledging that he is guilty, that his actions were deliberate, that they were willful, that he is culpable for his sin. But he is saying, I, my ignorance did not earn me God's mercy. Rather, what he is saying, my ignorance in what I did, my ignorance did not disqualify me from the grace of God. It's the same thing that Jesus prays on behalf of his crucifiers. As he's getting nailed to the cross, Jesus says, when they came to the place that is the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus is praying, forgive them, because they are acting in ignorance. This would be in contrast to Judas, who had full knowledge of Jesus Christ, rejected it, and who was not acting in ignorance. But Paul says that the ignorance that he had did not disqualify him from the mercy of God. In his characterization, he says, what God did to me, he says, I received mercy. In the Greek, this is actually a verb. It means literally, God mercied him. One of the Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, said, translates this this way. He's, Paul says, I, I was bemercied by God. You wish he were Scottish, but he was actually English. He says he was bemercied, that God had mercied him, that God gave him mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We do deserve death and misery and hell and punishment for our sins. Paul did deserve death and hell and misery for his sins and his evil and his wickedness. But instead, God mercied him. God gave him his mercy. And it didn't just come, but it overflowed. For he continues and says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace of God overflows. Grace, if mercy is is not getting what you do deserve, grace, is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You do deserve death and hell. You don't get that. Instead, you get grace, which is forgiveness of sins, abundance, eternal life, life, after, life everlasting. Life everlasting. Grace that comes, that overflows 
with faith and love. Grace overflows and bestows faith. That gives you the, that God, it is God's grace that comes to you, that overflows on you, so that you would have faith to believe in what Jesus Christ has done. Grace overflows with faith and with love. Love that you would understand and comprehend how high and deep and wide the breadth, height, width, and depth of the love of God. And you would not only understand that, but you would experience and have a knowledge of the love of God that surpasses understanding. That the love of God overflows. It takes hearts that were filled with fear and overflows them with faith. It takes hearts that were filled with hate and overflows them with hearts filled with love. And the grace of God, his mercy, his grace overflows. It keeps coming like a mighty river that cannot be stopped, like a river that is rushing through, going forward. And everything that stands in its way gets enveloped inside of it. The grace of God continues to flow. And it continues to come. Like the great picture of this we have in the United States of Niagara Falls, of the water that just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. 650,000 gallons of water every second over the edge. Second after second. 20 trillion gallons of water over the edge every year. Second by second, it keeps coming. Minute by minute, it keeps coming. Day by day, it keeps coming. Month by month and year by year, it keeps coming. Decade by decade, it keeps coming and it keeps overflowing. Century by century, the water still flows. Millennia by millennia, the water keeps coming and coming and the grace of God overflows. Second by second, minute by minute, day by day, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. Week by week, month by month, year by year, the grace of God just keeps coming. It keeps overflowing. Year by year, decade by decade, century by century, the grace of God just keeps overflowing, and it just keeps, it just keeps coming. Millennia by millennia, it keeps coming. No matter what it hits, it overflows. No matter what stands in its way, it subsumes it. No matter how much is absorbed, the grace continues to come. And so it is with the grace of God. Every second it just overflows more and more. It just keeps coming. Martin Luther, reflecting on this same truth, characterized it with a slightly different image, that of the sun. He says, just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up ten worlds, just as a hundred thousand lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it, Just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learned, and the more he gives, the more he has, so is Christ our Lord. An infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world angels, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over He is full of grace. It overflows. The sun keeps shining. The river keeps flowing. The grace of God keeps coming. There is more to follow. But when does the grace of God stop? It just keeps coming. 
But, but, but when is the grace, when is there enough? It just keeps coming. But, but what, if, what if I sin? The grace of God keeps coming. What, what if I sin again? The grace of God keeps coming. What if I sin again, again, and, and again, and again, and again? The grace of God overflows. It just keeps coming. But, but, but isn't there a time when the grace of God stops? No, it just keeps flowing. But what if I do something really, really, really bad? Can you make the sun stop shining? Can you make Niagara stop flowing? Then you can't cause the grace of God to stop overflowing you. And there is grace, an overflowing grace for you. There is overflowing grace for people of every tongue, tribe, and nation across the globe. And there is overflowing grace for you in particular. Grace not for sinners in the abstract, but for grace for sinners who really sin and who need a real Savior. People who sin in real ways in the flesh, like myself. And if you've never experienced the grace of God like the Apostle Paul, like Little Building, like myself, then today be the day that you cry out to the Lord and you say to him, Lord, I don't deserve your mercy. Quite the opposite. I, I, I don't deserve your grace. I, I, I deserve misery. But I trust and I fully accept that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. Oh, Jesus, would you save me? And when you do, the sun starts shining and the river starts flowing. And it flows upon you, and the grace will overflow you forever and ever and ever. God's grace is awful, and his grace is overflowing. But it doesn't stop there. There's a reason for it. Is that his grace is transformational. You see, the Apostle Paul, before he became a follower of Christ in his previous days, was the sort of person who did all kinds of wickedness. He was the sort of person for whom the law was intended, but the work of the gospel, the good news of Jesus in his life, the grace of God in his life, transformed him. And God took the foremost religious predator, the foremost religious persecutor, and turns him into the foremost missionary. I mean, consider this. God takes Paul, this egregious, arrogant, insolent, bloodthirsty man, the one who became the, the prototype of what ISIS is doing today, who, who set the model for religious inquisition around the globe. Paul did it first. And God takes this religious predator and he turns him into the foremost missionary because God's overflowing grace wasn't simply for Paul. It wasn't simply for him. Paul writes this. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's overflowing grace for Paul wasn't simply for Paul, but God's overflowing grace for Paul was so that others would see in Paul, Paul being an example, that others would see in Paul the grace of God and that they in turn would believe by seeing the work of grace in the life of Paul. It's the same for you and for me. God's overflowing grace upon you isn't simply for you. 
that the grace of God is given to us so that we would become an example to those who, were, who would believe in him for eternal life. We become an example so that others see the grace of God in us and that they would say, yes, that, is, that saying is trustworthy and true. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and that means me. God's purpose of his grace that overflows you is bigger than you. He wants his grace to be seen in you so that others would trust and accept Christ because they see the work of Christ in you. It's transformational. In 1918, there was a criminal by the name of Tokyo Takichi Ishii who was hung for murder. He had been sent to prison more than 20 times. He was a hardened, vile, tough criminal, as tough and vile as they come. On one occasion, after attacking a prison guard, he was hung from the ceiling of his jail cell. He was bound, gagged, hung from the ceiling so that his toes just barely touched the ground. Yet shortly before receiving his death sentence, there was two missionaries, a Miss West and a Miss McDonald, came and visited him in his cell and gave him a copy of the New Testament. And as a result, Tokyo Takichi Ishii committed his life to Jesus Christ and came to know him as his Lord and Savior. When he received his death sentence, Tokyo said that his death sentence by hanging was the fair and impartial judgment of God upon him. On one occasion, he was with Miss West, this brave female missionary by herself, and they were reading 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which is this passage that deals with suffering and the way that God works in us in suffering. And he came to the part of the passage where it says that being poor, that though we are poor, we make many rich. And Tokyo Takichi Ishii gave this reflection. He says, this certainly does not apply to the evil life I led before I repented. But perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain who ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Jesus Christ. That they may hear that and that they too may so, and that they so may come to repent also. Then it may be that though I am poor myself, I shall be able to make many rich. He was executed shortly thereafter on a scaffold with great humility receiving what he believed to be the just and impartial judgment of God upon him. In his final words, he said this, My soul has been purified and today returns to the city of God. And God, through his overflowing grace, overflows and overwhelms a man who, he, who describes himself as the most desperate villain who ever lived. And he says, know that the grace of God overflows someone like me. Just as it did someone like Paul, who regarded himself as the foremost of sinners some 1,900 years before God's grace is awful. It is amazing. It is 
overflowing. It is transformational. Do you ever feel disqualified before God? Do you ever feel disqualified to serve him? That God would never use me. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too fill in the blank. I'm not gifted enough, I'm not talented enough, I've got too much sin, I've got too much brokenness, I don't know enough about Christianity, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, my life is too messed up. Do you ever feel disqualified to serve him? I felt that way for many years. I had in my, I had sensed this call from the Lord in my life to go into ministry, and I rejected it. I just rejected it. And I rejected it because I would, I would say, no, like, I'm not qualified. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I, I've sinned too much. There's too much brokenness in my life. I've sinned too much. I've done too many things wrong. God, God wouldn't use me. God can't use me. And then I'd read passages of Scripture, and I'd read what God did in the life of Paul. Now, God overflows this grace for the most notorious religious predator and turns him into the foremost missionary. And I would read of how God used Moses and how Moses was a murderer and God called him to himself and used him. And then I would read stories of Zacchaeus and how he was a, a cheat and a tax collector and of these stories of God's grace upon prominent, public, notorious sinners. And I would read those stories and I would say, that's fine that you did it for them, God, but that's not me. That's not my sin. That's not my, that's not my struggle. That's great that you did it for them. That's great that you can use them, but that's not me. I'm too sinful. I'm disqualified. And then I was convicted by the grace of God. And questions that plagued me that said, is the arm of the Lord too short that it cannot save? Is the grace of God too shallow that it cannot overflow? Do you think that God couldn't use you? If, God, if it, it is God who strengthens, it is God who saves, it is God who calls, it is God who quips, it is God who transforms. And if God can, who are you to say that he can't or that he won't? The grace of God is awful and amazing. It is overwhelming and overflowing. And it is transformational. It is the grace of God that overwhelmed Paul, that overwhelmed little Bilney, that overwhelmed Tokyo Takishi Ishii, that overwhelms me and the grace of God that overwhelms and is overflows for you. And his grace is there for you today, anew, afresh, and when it comes, it never stops, and it just keeps coming. So let us praise the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace, your grace that fills us with all, your grace that is never ceasing, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever, your grace that flows second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, millennia by millennia, it just keeps coming. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, may our lives be 
overflow with your grace. And Lord, may you use us as an example of your grace so that we would not only testify, but other people would say, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And I am the foremost. Work your grace in us, we pray. Amen.